Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now the sun aches over the tree line this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no moon night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to, appropriately maybe, episode 13 of the Anxious Poets Podcast. I am the Anxious Poet, I'm Adrian Scott. Welcome to a brand new world. Well, since my last podcast on keelhauling and vulnerability, the world has changed. My world has changed. I think everybody's world has changed. With the advent of the coronavirus, which has affected the whole world with a tragic loss of life and the fear that has gripped us. The world in the UK has changed. We're under uh, an extended lockdown that's going on for at least another three weeks, but I think it will go on longer. Um, We're in our houses. We are vulnerable. I'm in one of the vulnerable categories. Um, My middle daughter has had a number of letters from the NHS warning her that she's in in an extremely vulnerable category. So it's fearful. And I really have wondered what to say, how to approach another podcast. The thing that I've thought about a lot and come to trust, strangely, is uncertainty. I heard Stephen Fry the other day being asked what his um, reaction and approach to this lockdown and to this period was. And he spoke of only really trusting the uncertain voices, the people who opened each sentence with, we don't really know, however, this is our best guess, or... This is, this is the way that seems most appropriate to proceed at this moment. He also spoke of uh, his, his sense of having to find another approach to time. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. 
But this idea of uncertainty uh, really is the only thing that I feel I can talk about um, because I'm riddled with it. When will this end? How will it end? Will I be okay? Will my family be okay? Will the people I love be okay? Will this country be okay? Will the NHS be okay? There's so much uncertainty. And I, I racked my brains. I'd heard the word incertus, a Latin word, which, which means uncertain or doubtful or unsure or hesitant. And I couldn't remember where I'd heard it. And then I, it suddenly dawned on me that at the beginning of a fantastic um, documentary by RTE, the Irish television station, uh, called Out of the Marvellous, a great documentary. I think it was made for his 70th birthday. Uh, and it looks at, um, at his life and work. There's lots of interviews with him. And, and early on in the documentary, he mentions this poem. Um, it's a funny little nuggety, strange little piece. I'll read it. In Chertus, I went disguised in it, pronouncing it with a soft church Latin C, tagging it under my efforts like a damp fuse, uncertain, a shy soul fretting and all that, expert obeisance. Oh yes, I crept before I walked. The old pseudonym lies there like a mouldering tegument. It's a strange little piece. A mouldering tegument, a garment. But there's something to be said for this approach to life of uncertainty, a shy soul fretting and all that. He uses that word fretting. And in an article I was reading about this piece, the writer says, fretting means not only a fussing lack of confidence, but from the Middle English, fretan, to eat, is a deliberate and systematic gnawing, chafing, eroding, teasing, irritating, vexing and worrying. It describes a querulous agitation of mind, similar to a puzzle or riddle that evokes wonder. So this disposition of uncertainty, of, of not knowing, the lacuna is another word that really speaks to me at the moment. That place that you can't get over, a lacuna is a, a, a passage in life where you can't get over it. You have to stand on the precipice and look into it. Um, and wait, wait in that deep uncertainty for other forces, for unknown maybe or, or unexpected, unseen forces to come to your aid, visible or invisible help from within or without. We have to wait. It's what in older days people were were said to be doing when they were praying. It was that waiting for for some other force, some other enlightenment. From from our point of view, 
in in days when we find religious language much harder it's it's for something to come up from the unconscious from the imaginal world from the dream world or or inspiration people to find the vaccine to to work out how to deal with this crisis um, through inspiration uh, inspiration that breathing in of of uh, forces that we are uncertain of or not sure where they come from or not sure how to harness them but we have to wait we have to look into that lacuna and wait until those things begin to move oh yes i crept before i walked he said so this inchertus this uncertainty is really difficult i think to to hold on to um, a position of uncertainty but I'm finding it's the only way of making any sense of what's going on around me and I've come to distrust anyone who seems to come bounding out of the internet or on social media or on the television with with any kind of garrulous certainty I, I distrust it because it doesn't speak true to me and I, I remember a poem I wrote quite a long time ago um, about this phenomenon of, of whether those who look so certain or those who are trying to culture uh, an image of I know what's happening and I can guide you through this um, I wrote this poem a long time ago because I somewhat distrusted it. So I'll read the piece. It's called The Real Truth. To be truthful, I don't always know what life is for. Yes, there are sparks of clarity in the stubble of the commonplace. But most days, most days... I live in a cloudy unknowing, disorientated, just negotiating the next task without becoming the opposite of the early dawn stillness I long to embody. Of course, I've read many baggy handbooks on the need to be present to my life, to God, or even to my dog. Once or twice in a month of mornings, I touch something an out-of-insight's grain store garnered from the wise ones comes winnowing out an ear of wisdom, telling me that my soul is a cast and ringing bowl, that if I stay still long enough, my soul will show up like an image through tracing paper. I wonder, though, the wise ones, do they really do it? Or are they, like me, fleetingly conscious that it might be true? And have they, like me, wished all the shadows cast by previous stabs at contact would move out of the way? But perhaps the real truth is that the shadows are it. And we just haven't realised they are presence in disguise. Perhaps the real truth is that the shadows are it and we just haven't realised they are presence in disguise.
This was written at a time when I was trying every morning to do a morning sit, um, a quiet time before the household woke up, and found it really difficult. And I still do. I still do find just sitting and being silent very challenging. And I think it's it goes back to this thing of uncertainty. You know, what's what am I doing? What's there? Um, I live in a cloudy unknowing, and that was a, a conscious reference to the the great um, spiritual track, the cloud of unknowing. It all of that literature comes from um, what we were taught at, at, uh, in theology was called the apophatic tradition. There's two two traditions there's the cataphatic which means to go with the light and then the apophatic against the light the way of darkness the way of unknowing and again all through my life in training for the priesthood and, and my spiritual life I've always been much more attracted to the apophatic in a lot of ways I do love St Francis uh, who was definitely the cataphatic he went with the light in a lot of ways um, loved the natural world and was drawn to whatever is out there, whatever the other is, through the natural world. But he also had a deeply apophatic side to him. He would pray in caves. He was um, he would contemplate the cross. Uh, in other words, he'd contemplate the dismantling, the disorientating, the... Uh, displaced sense that we have within ourselves and, and would find the other deeply embedded in that. So as the poem says, Have they, like me, wished all the shadows cast by previous stabs at contact would move out of the way? The shadows of, of uncertainty, of fear, danger of not knowing what the outcome of this whole thing will be you when you sit and try and be mindful I have a friend who teaches mindfulness who I'd like to come on this podcast Fiona and she did some mindfulness work with me and and we would sit there and and the great thing that she helped me with was when my anxiety arose during the sit, during the mindfulness, instead of trying to push it out of the way, she would say, be curious about it, engage with it, speak with it, learn, learn from it. Don't attach yourself to it, just allow it to arise and to be there and to have its place in your life. That was incredibly helpful. And I think at the moment, for me, it's, it's about allowing that uncertainty. I don't want to push it out of the way, you know, get rid of all of these, these difficult things, then I'll be able to, to be still. I need to be still with them sitting there. I need to try and be still with them sitting around me, like companions in a council. So I've realised even in the quietness of lockdown 
it's still easy to get really busy and to try and distract ourselves from the from the overwhelming difficulty of it all and and you know it's it's hard to hold what's going on because you know I'm really fortunate I live in a, a leafy place and I can go for a nice walk with my dog but then I watch the television and those incredible um, shots of, of inside the NHS and, and the coronavirus wards and people on ventilators and the death toll rising and uh, I feel incredibly powerless and I'm in touch with the food bank where I work um, in normal times um, and and there's deliveries going on of, of food to people's doors and I've helped with that a couple of times and you know it's a few bags of shopping and people are really grateful um, and, and you can see the fear in their eyes um, and some of the places where people are living it's so difficult so it's hard to find a moment in a day and I'd like to share a poem that I wrote just before the whole coronavirus thing exploded and it's about the time of year I, I, I like to really try and notice what the time of year is speaking to me at the moment I'm looking out of my window and I can see the fresh green leaves blowing in a in a April breeze um, and, and I find that deeply comforting that somehow the natural world is going about its business uh, like Mary Oliver says in The Wild Geese meanwhile everything is growing everything is happening but this poem comes from kind of January February which was incredibly wet here we had floods um, and everything got pretty mucky the poem is called A Moment in Each Day and it, it comes from um, a quote from William Blake writing about Milton and he says, There is a moment in each day that Satan cannot find. This comes from a, a, a larger quote. There is a moment in each day that Satan cannot find nor can his watch fiends find it but the industrious find this moment and it multiply and when it once is found it renovates every moment of the day if rightly placed. It renovates every moment of the day if rightly placed. So this piece is a reflection on that quote from Blake. There is such a dirtiness around the outside of the house at this time of year Everywhere is filthy. Where does all this muddiness come from? I think it must be all the leaves that autumn left behind itself like an untidy teenager. Its outfits discarded, scattered until this February rain turns them into a porridge of dark slurry that sticks to the feet of my dogs. It happens when I obey the yelps and open the door to their need for freedom from winter. I've been grilling myself every day now, questioning myself fiercely about the end of things, the end of midlife, the last vestiges of adolescence sticking to my children, the end of my old dog's life, 
who died last September as the leaves began to separate and flutter, and his chest stilled. There's been so much rain this year, the deluge snowdrops, who are usually like tiny huddles of umpires conferring, white heads matching the white frost, are now more like a clump of fans at a washed-out football match, left standing bedraggled and debating when to leave. And of course, the rain is because it is so inordinately warm and the daffodils, too early, are shouting their yellowness into a dirty world that is nowhere near ready for spring. And now I'm out with the young dog as the night has drawn out a little and I catch sight of that ground floor maisonette window with the empty love seat in front of it and the woman staring out as she washes up a plate, then a cup in her mid-fifties. The heating flue is belching out fog, clouding the evening as she wipes the final teaspoon, putting it in the plastic pot on the draining board, and her eyes have pooled endlessness. Looking past me, past the dog, up the road, past the blue sign of the co-op, into the muddying sky, her gaze makes me turn to see the white vapour trail of an aeroplane searing through the growing darkness, heading neither of us knows where. Infinity is a place to her, a refuge that she seeks out when the need for reverie is greater than the sum of all the parts of her life that don't add up to something good, and the mud in mine is so clogging I can't slough it off. Infinity is a place to her, a refuge that she seeks out when the need for reverie is greater than the sum of all the parts of her life that don't add up to something good, and the mud in mine is so clogging I can't slough it off. This poem began with my frustration and discomfort with how mucky the time of year was with the mud that came in on my feet and the dog's feet every time I went out with them walking and then moved into the idea of grilling myself every day questioning myself fiercely about the end of things I was thinking that I'm 59 almost this is, I'm not in midlife anymore and the last vestiges of adolescence sticking to my children they're all in their mid-twenties to late-twenties. And then that set me thinking about Gabriel, my dog who died last September, as the leaves, and, and someone described that process to me once in a writing group, how the leaves form, the tree forms a barrier between itself and the leaf, which then the leaf flutters down, no longer needed. And I thought of the moment that Gabriel's chest stopped lifting and settling when the vet had given him the injection and and just thought of the end of things which had a certain um, prescience about it maybe and and the moment in the day where where you think about the end of things sometimes when you're just falling asleep or you're struck by the transience of things and then the poem continues uh, with the kind of reverie of, of how much rain 
there had been and the images of, of usually my snowdrops are surrounded by frost and snow and this year they were in puddles like a crowd left standing bedraggled and debating when to leave and then I realised that the rain was partly because of global warming uh, we just don't have as much frost and snow as we used to have um, but the nights are starting to draw out and I was wanting to hold that intention with the muddiness and, and wetness of the winter with that extension of the sunlight which is the, the, the presaging of spring and I'm out with the dog a bit later because it's light and for years I've done the same walk and I, I come down the main road and there's a, a two blocks of maisonettes they're like two two-storied flats and there's this particular one that I've noticed so many times with a love seat in front of it and I so often see the woman who lives in it washing up and staring out of the window and she's a very normal looking woman um, around probably a bit younger than me, early 50s maybe but the way she looks out of the window sometimes is, is heart-wrenching and I'm aware that that's my projection in a lot of ways but this particular night she was looking out past me and the sun was setting and the sky was getting muddy um, and her eyes seemed to pool infinity, endlessness that reverie, that moment in the day that the poem's title speaks of looking past me, past the dog up the road, past the sign of the co-op and at that point there were still vapour trails in the sky but none of us know where they're going and there was a sense of we don't know where we're going into the future that I felt and then this last stanza infinity is a place to her a refuge that she seeks out when the need for reverie is greater than the sum of all the parts of her life that don't add up to something good that feeling of, of when life you look at the parts of your life and, and somehow it doesn't feel enough. We feel that lack, that, that sense of I'm not enough that, that may have a ring of truth in it but is not in, in the longer scheme of things. I don't believe that's true. Um, and that this moment in the day somehow can bring you into contact with something with an infinity that makes you less aware of what doesn't add up and more aware of what's good in your life of that moment of reverie that Satan cannot find us as Blake puts it in other words that that instinct to pull apart and dismantle and 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 dismember us can't find it's a moment of infinity and of unity and and the mud in mine is so clogging I can't slough it off that the idea that that I've allowed so many of those accretions to to stick to me and that this moment 
changes things. That's what the poem is hoping for, aching towards, moving me and those who read it towards. There is a moment in each day, says Blake, that Satan cannot find, nor can his watch fiends find it. But the industrious find this moment, and it multiply. And when it once is found, it renovates every moment of the day of rightly placed. It renovates every moment of the day. I'm really fascinated and taken with this idea of this moment. And trying to think of, of where I've seen it clearly. And, and I've recently been watching the film Il Postino. It's a fabulous Italian film. It was made by an English filmmaker, Michael Radford, based on a novel called Burning Patience by Antonio Scametta. And the, the star of the film is Massimo Troisi. And he's got the most fabulous face. And the, and the basic conceit of the film is that there's an island off Naples made up of predominantly fishermen. And I think it's probably in the 30s. And Neruda, the uh, Chilean poet, is exiled from Chile for his socialist beliefs and finds himself exiled onto this island. And the character that Massimo Troisi plays, uh, Mario Rupolo, doesn't like fishing, he gets seasick, so he's unemployed. And there's a notice saying, postman needed, because Neruda gets so much mail. And he lives up this hill, terrible hill, um, so they need someone with a bicycle who can read. And Mario Rupolo has both of those attributes. And so he begins to go up to the poet's house every day to take him his mail. And they strike up a relationship. Um, and Mario Rupolo is a, is a kind of simple soul. But you know underneath it there's a depth. Um, and there's this amazing scene where... They begin to develop a friendship and Mario Rupolo starts to try and write poetry. He wants to be a poet. And um, they're on the beach and Neruda is wanting to go swimming. But Mario Rupolo is, is asking him questions about poetry. And in the end, Neruda narrates a poem that he's been writing about the sea. About, about how the sea comes in and out and strikes its name on the chest of the land over and over, saying its name. And, and uh, Rupolo says, oh, that's a great piece, great poem. Uh, it made me feel like a boat on the, the words of your poem being, being tossed around. And, uh, and Neruda says to him, ah, you see what you've done there? And he's like, what? He says... You've come up with a metaphor. No, he says, no. And he says, no, you've a metaphor, the boat on, on the words. And he says, well, it doesn't count because I didn't mean to. And, um, and Neruda says, no one means to. This comes from the imagination. It comes from the unconscious. Um, and then Rupolo is, is caught by this. And he says, so is 
what you're saying is that everything, the sea, the sky, the beach, the stones, the fish, everything in the world is a metaphor for something else. And Neruda is knocked for six by this statement and looks at him and is silent. And Mario Rupolo is like, what? What have I said? And he says, I'm going for a swim now and I will think about what you said for a day and then we'll talk again. And off he goes and goes swimming. And there's such a beautiful poignancy. And the guy that plays Massimo Troisi, plays Rupolo, saw this script and was so keen to play it, I think this is right, but he had a, a congenital heart problem and they basically said to him, if you do this film, it may kill you. And pretty much it did. So this was his last work. And he was a comedian, a comedic uh, performer. But the performance he gives in this film is just wonderful. You have to see it if you can. But that scene is like one of those moments in the day, if rightly placed, is, is, is like a sanctuary. And, and everything else seems to fit together after you've had that moment. Neruda was, was a, 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 I don't know too much about him, but his poetry is, is stunning. And he, he certainly seems to be able to take the ordinary and find images that, that really speak to you and, and touch that, that reverie. And if there's something that we've got time for at the moment, it is reverie. It's that, if I've ever talked with a group and you say, do you remember when you were a child and, and you daydreamed? And you can guarantee that half the group will immediately start doing it. I remember just sitting out and looking out of, I may well have said this before, out of the window and just gazing. I still like to do, watch, when I have my breakfast, watch the birds on the bird feeders. Just watch them and, and their little bodies and the way they move and the absolute beauty of them. I think that there is a moment at the moment in each day where we are faced with what I was saying at the beginning, the lacuna, with the... Uh, with the gap that this has opened up, with the uncertainty. And we stand on the edge of it. I'm going to read a poem called A Dream of Trains by Neruda, which captures some of what seems to be going on at the moment. The idea that everything is stopped, and it begins with the trains were dreaming in the station, locomotives uncoupled, defenceless, asleep. When I was a little lad, my mum used to take me past the bus station and say, let's go and see the buses gone nanites. Let's go and see the buses asleep, in other words. And I've got a painting as well of, of steam trains waiting in a line to be broken up. It's called Last Hours at Nine Elms. 
the, the, the thought of these big beasts of transportation just sitting idle, which is what they're doing at the moment, like planes. So this is a dream of trains. The trains were dreaming in the station, locomotives uncoupled, defenceless, asleep. At dawn, I stumbled inside, looking for secrets, things lost in the coaches, in the dead smells of the journey. Among vanishing bodies, I alone sat down in the motionless train. The air clotted together in a block of lapsed conversations and vagrant despondencies. Lost souls in compartments like keys without locks, fallen under the seats. Women en route from the south with chickens and bouquets of flowers, murdered perhaps, or perhaps they had come back to weep or burn down the coaches in a blaze of carnations. Or maybe I'm a traveller, one of the party, and the steam of the journey, the wet of the tracks, live on in a motionless train. Or perhaps I'm only a passenger down on his luck between sleeping and waking. There I was in my seat as the train pushed into my body, smashed past frontiers, and suddenly it turned into the train of my childhood, the smoke of the earliest dawn and the bittersweet summer. Other trains hurtled by, boxcars loaded with sorrows, like a cargo of asphalt. So the motionless train sped into the morning, heaping its grief on my bones. I was alone in the loneliness of the train, but more than that, other solitudes had gathered their baggage together, waiting for passage like the poor on the platforms. And I in the train, a dead smoke among improvident spirits, bent under the burden of so many deaths, felt lost in a journey in which nothing else moved but my own way-worn heart. And I in the train, a dead smoke among improvident spirits, bent under the burden of so many deaths, felt lost in a journey in which nothing else moved but my own way-worn heart. That really speaks to me of of that, that moment in the day when it all hits you. And yet he's taken as well back to his childhood, the train of his childhood and the smoke of the earliest dawn and the bittersweet summer. Other trays hur trains hurtled by, boxcars loaded with sorrows like a cargo of asphalt. It really captures something of what seems to be going on at the moment. The other story that's really spoken to me uh, in, in my kind of reading and, and looking for poems that speak to me of, of what's going on at the moment <clears throat> and speak into that uncertainty and that, that, that moment of the day of, of reverie. And it's the story of I and John which I've, I've recounted many times doing men's work. It's a Grimm's fairy tale long fairy tale about um <clears throat> about a young boy and and a, and a and a giant at the beginning of the story there's a kingdom and there's a wood 
and the wood has become a dangerous place that no one will go in because everyone that's been sent in there disappears. So the king one day has a, a an adventurer come to his court and the adventurer says, you know, like every hero, give me a job. And he says, go into the forest because I keep losing everyone. And he goes with his little dog and he, he's walking around this massive pool and a great iron coloured hairy hand reaches out and pulls the dog into the lake and so the adventurer realises that he needs to do something he gets a whole load of the people from the court and they they take buckets and they pull all the water out of the lake and at the bottom is this hairy giant called Iron John, Iron Hans um, and he's rusty and he's powerful and they tie him up because he's asleep and they take him back to the court and they put him in a cage and they lock the cage with the key which is kept under the pillow of the queen and the little prince of the kingdom is playing with his little golden ball and it rolls into the cage and he says to Iron John can I have my ball back and he says yeah you can have it back as long as you let me out and as in every fairy tale you go through three iterations of this until finally he steals the key from under the pillow of, of the queen and lets Iron John out, who strides out of the castle. The boy realises he's in trouble and and begs Iron John to take him with him. And so Iron John puts him on his shoulders. He tells him he's never going to see his parents again and off they go into the woods. And, and then there's a whole series of things that happen uh, that Iron John gives the boy tasks at which he fails, one of which is to guard a, a pond that everything that falls into it turns to gold and his hair falls into it and his hair turns to gold. In the end, Iron John dismisses him from the tasks and sends him off into the world to make his fortune, telling him that if he's ever in need, he should come to the edge of the wood and call for him. He finds himself in a, a distant kingdom's castle and he, he has to clean out the ashes and then he becomes a, a, a gardener. The princess takes a shine to him um, and then there's a war and he goes back to the forest and Iron John equips him with all kinds of um, soldiers and horses and and he becomes a hero and then, then he catches these golden apples um, and it all, you know, as fairy tales do, turns out happily ever after. And um, and and then there's a denouement. And and this is a great American poet called Anne Sexton. I discovered her through Peter Gabriel. He has this powerful song called Mercy Street, and it's about her. I think she took her own life uh, in the end, but wrote excruciatingly frank and honest poetry and, and had this whole book called Transformations and they're all based on fairy tales. And this is what she writes about the end of this fairy tale. At the wedding feast, the music stopped suddenly and a door flew open and a proud king walked in and embraced the boy. Of course, it was Iron Hans, Iron John. He had been bewitched and the boy had broken the spell. He who slays the warrior and captures the maiden's heart undoes the spell. He who kills his father and thrice wins his mother undoes the spell, she says. Without Thorazine or the benefit of psychotherapy, Iron John was transformed. 
No need for master medical, no need for electroshock, merely bewitched all along, just as the frog who was a prince, just as the madman, his simple boyhood. When I was a wild man, Iron John said, I tarnished the world. I was the infector, I was the poison breather, I was a professional, but you have saved me from the awful babble of that calling. What does she mean? I was the infector, I was the poison breather, I was a professional, but you've saved me from the awful babble of that calling. It, it powerfully speaks to me about people with power. Iron John is, is, a, is a powerful, furious figure, bewitched by we don't know what, and and he he in this poem she has him say I was the infector the poison breather somehow when power is unchecked and full of certainty it becomes really dangerous but you've saved me from the awful babble of that calling the awful babble that you hear all the time at the moment on the internet on social media on the news and, and I pray for and, and yearn for people who speak not with certainty, but with calmness, not with babble, but with well-chosen words. And, and somehow in that fairy tale, which is well worth reading, it's the boy, though he doesn't know it, that breaks the enchantment on Iron John by... By what? By gently following each step of his calling, each next part. He does as if that was the only part that mattered, not, not for what comes next. And he does actually meet his mother and father again, but he doesn't think he will. There's a, there's a quiet reverie about the boy in the fairy tale um, that attracts the princess, interestingly. Um, he's working in the garden and he takes off his, his, gold, his cap and his golden hair shows and she's, it reflects on her bedroom ceiling. But he, th there's an amazing bit where he, he's given um, these golden apples and he's given money and he gives it to the gardener's children and it says in the, in the fairy tale, because gold had no hold over him. So... Uh, I think what I'm struggling to talk about here is just I'm I'm taken with Anne Sexton's understanding of overweening, overreaching, unaccountable, dangerous power. And and that it's it's the people who find that moment in the day that Satan cannot find that re-renovates everything about them. And I'm certainly searching for that, um, that, that moment. And, and I think in anxiety, which I've felt a fair degree of lately, um, there is this search for, for, for the calm center, but it doesn't come by avoiding what we're anxious about. It comes by looking at it the boy looks Iron John square in the face many times in that in that fairy tale. 
and 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 he finds that they release each other from from enchantment they give each other real solidity and a real sense of who they are it's something about seeing clearly when i go to the lake district which i do quite a lot and i'd love to go again we were meant to be there last week then I always like to go to Brantwood. I went years ago with my mum. Um, <clears throat> it's where John Ruskin lived. Ruskin's got great connections with Sheffield. Ruskin's a strange character in a lot of ways. Um, very difficult relationship, it seems, with women. Um, he was a kind of Victorian polymath. Um, he, he wrote voluminously about architecture about art um, he wrote about social conditions he wrote an amazing piece called unto this last which was the foundational kind of inspiration for socialism in this country and for any type of collective supportive state he envisaged things like the national health service free education for all way way ahead of his time he he became incredibly low and depressed towards the end of his life by the state of the world and and envisaged the the kind of environmental catastrophe that we're on the edge of now even then um he spent a lot of time alone a lot of time wandering the hills of the lake district the house looks over coniston and it's absolutely spectacular um and as I say, he's an unusual character. But uh, there's, a, there's a new book about him called To See Clearly, Why Ruskin Matters by Suzanne Fagans Cooper. I went to hear her speak in Sheffield. She says, um, well, she quotes him on the back of the book, to see clearly is poetry, prophecy, religion, all in one. To see clearly is poetry, prophecy, religion, all in one. And she says of him, he opens our eyes, showing us new ways of seeing. In Ruskin, we find a freshness, a vulnerability, and then a descent into silence. We find a freshness, a vulnerability, and then a descent into silence. It's that, that moment again of, of silence, of reverie. And... I think a lot of Ruskin's great insights came from his ability to to be in those reveries. And, I mean, who wouldn't look in over Coniston the way he had uh, the ability to do? And, and I, one of my most precious senses is of looking at the old man of Coniston every morning when I work with... Uh, when I go up with David White or when we go up with the family to look at the old man of Coniston and the weather on the top of him which changes all the time and the way the lake looks and the gondolas on the lake and the sound of the hooting of the horn it's all it's so evocative and powerful and and gentle and generous and all of those things um, and then a descent into silence then a descent into silence. I want to finish with a, a, a poem 
that's from my first book, The Call of the Unwritten. And it feels like a really appropriate way to end this meander through the way I'm feeling. The other thing that's happened to me while we're in this lockdown is I've developed shingles, which um, has been deeply uncomfortable. Um, compared with people who've got the coronavirus, it's nothing. But it's made me feel more vulnerable and and deeply uncomfortable. It was hard to sleep at first. And and it all heightened my sense of of that we're going through some kind of huge turning point, some kind of huge upheaval that I really pray fervently will make us look at ourselves and the world in a different way and change the way we do things, the way we look after each other, the way we care for each other. The lovely moment where we stand outside our, our, our house clapping for the people in the NHS. And there was a lovely video I shared on social media, not a lovely, powerful uh, nurses and doctors and, and shopkeepers and um, a delivery driver and all immigrants saying, you clap for us now, please remember this. Remember that we are all together in this and that, that we've looked after you. Don't treat us again as if we are the enemy, as if we're the virus. So I'm, I'm praying that, that this, this time creates a, a turning point that the lacuna, that the, the abyss that we're looking into makes us see ourselves differently and makes us see what it is that actually really matters inside of us. So this piece is called Taking Stock. I was driving home one night over the valley and the clouds were like lowering themselves onto the hills. And, and I was thinking about this great these paintings of, uh, on the basilica walls in, in Assisi telling the story of St Francis by Giotto. And um, when they wanted to tell you that God was involved, the, the, there'd be a hand. So when Francis strips himself of all his possessions and he's there and the bishop's putting his robe around him and his father's looking really annoyed with him, in the sky there's a hand coming out of the sky and it's giving a kind of thumbs up as if to say... Okay, this is this is what God likes, and I was just thinking, what a strange way of depicting things that was in that hand, and and I don't know. Somehow I started thinking about when my dad had a stroke, and, and what a turning point that was in his life and my life, and how life can just change in in a heartbeat, and this piece came out of it. Taking stock. How would it feel if? Out of the darkening grey of duskfall clouds as they lower themselves onto the backs of the hills. An unseen hand reached down and removed at a stroke everything, everything that makes up the minutes of your life and left you in the stripped yearning of a bare night. 
And then, in the cold, initiatory shiver of a new dawn, that same hand returns your life to you in discreet items like clothing on hangers and shoes in boxes. What would you choose to keep for the expedition we call our life? And more important, what, finally, would you choose to leave behind? Taking stock, how would it feel if, out of the darkening grey of duskfall clouds, as they lower themselves onto the backs of the hills, an unseen hand reached down and removed at a stroke everything that makes up the minutes of your life and left you in the stripped yearning of a bare night? And then, in the cold, initiatory shiver, of a new dawn, that same hand, that same hand returned your life to you in discreet items like clothing on hangers and shoes in boxes. What, what would you choose to keep for that expedition we call our life? What would you choose to keep for that expedition we call our life? And more important, what finally would you choose to leave behind? And more important, what finally would you choose to leave behind? This has been the Anxious Poets podcast with me, Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. I hope you all stay well and safe in this really difficult time. And... I wish for you one of those moments each day that Blake talks about. That moment where you can look this whole thing clearly in the face, but also feel the movement of those unseen forces that take you across the lacuna, that, that visible or invisible come to your aid and renovate the rest of your day. Go well. Cheerio.